0: so much change happening globally that when we get too focused on whatever stupid thing Trump said today, or or when we even get too focused on this very specific localized trade war between the United States and China, we risk losing sight of the tremendous global transformation that's happening all around us slow moving changes over time create political systems that you didn't imagine could be possible but when you have these crises they create systems that aren't necessarily good a lot of times they can be bad and people glam onto them because they're worried about survival or they're worried about whatever crisis they're dealing with in the moment technology is political and politics is embedded within it the best example of this is the atomic bomb China is a threat in a lot of different ways when it comes to these networks, but the bigger threat is the fact that there's just three companies that do this stuff and that the supply chains that create a lot of the infrastructure that goes into rolling out these networks is really brittle and is focused on just a couple countries. But I don't see that China has any desire to recreate its system of government around the world. What it wants to do is become a global center of gravity for the economy. It wants to sort of reintegrate the world into that system where all roads lead to Beijing. And you have to bring tribute to Beijing, and then Beijing smiles upon the barbarians accordingly, and everything's fine.
1: Can I- Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Those comments you just heard were from Jacob Shapiro, the founder and chief strategist at Perch Perspectives. And in this episode, we're starting to look beyond the traditional national security actors, those folk who are or have recently worked in a government role. They're one of the many highly connected think tanks about the region. And we're asking what role private industry can play in the formulation and implementation of national security policy, or even assisting other private industry actors to navigate their way through a risky and insecure geopolitical landscape. In coming episodes, we will speak to private industry actors that have been at the forefront of responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. We will speak to political and security analysts from large financial organisations and management firms. And today, we kick it all off by speaking to someone who has worked in a number of America's leading private intelligence and geopolitical forecasting firms, and that has recently branched out to start his own organization that has already attracted some significant clients due to its unique approach of placing history, culture and human experience at the center of their analysis, rather than the traditional political approach. I came to know Jacob in a previous life when I was also working at a US-based private intelligence firm. I learned pretty quickly that he had an approach to geopolitical analysis that didn't really follow the orthodoxy. Jacob truly grasps the nature of geopolitics by expanding the scope from the traditional approach to national power, which is most often narrowly focused on economics and the ability to translate economics into power by way of military force. Jacob looks much wider, pulling in all facets of national power, such as technology, geography, access to resources, historical experience, and even the more human drivers, such as fear, hunger, culture, and prestige. I recently got in touch with Jacob, and we discussed how private firms like his fit into the wider landscape, and I asked him which are the issues that are currently grabbing his attention. As I expected, it was much more than the chaos and spite that has come to dominate the airwaves over the recent months. Let's hear my discussion with Jacob right now. G'day, Jacob. Welcome to the National Security Podcast.
0: Chris, I would say good day, but it, it would sound a little bit uh, artificial. Uh, so I'll just say howdy, and it's, it's good to be with you.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. As I mentioned in the introduction, we're taking a closer look at the role of private industry and national security, and maybe you could start off by talking about where organizations like Perch Perspectives fit into the wider landscape. What do private organizations offer that the media and government don't already provide?
0: Yeah, so full transparency, Chris, you sent me this question, so I had a little bit of time to mull it over. And I'd never really thought about this before, but the word private in that context is actually it's, it's pretty strange um, because I, I don't feel like there's anything actually private about what I do. The, the, the word that I would describe Perch Perspectives as is independent. And I think that's that's really the virtue uh, behind not being um, answerable to a group of readers or to a uh, to a particular viewership to a government official or to a government department, even, even an electorate. I'm, I'm answerable to specific clients on specific tasks and I get judged based on how well I'm able to help that client get to that task. And in that sense, um, Perch is, it's in a really interesting space because we sit between all of the, the sectors that you talked about. We consume the media, we talk to policy we're advising business executives. So one of the things that we're doing there is we're basically having to consume everything, having our finger on the pulse of everything, understanding the entire system. And depending on who we're talking to, whether it's somebody in the media is interviewing us as an expert, if it's a policymaker looking for a gut check on a policy that they're trying out, if it's one of our business clients, we have to give them that holistic sense of what's going on. Um, in that sense, I'll also say that when I'm working with um, I guess private companies, um, it, it's refreshingly apolitical because a lot of companies... They have a service or a product or an idea that they think are going to make the world better or more likely are going to make them money. And they only care about politics or ideology or partisanship insofar as it either helps them or blocks them from getting towards their goal. Um, and because of, of the fact that Perch Perspectives is independent, it's private in that sense, um, we, we get to go out there and talk to people that maybe somebody in the government can't talk to. Or we get to say things that maybe a media person can't say because it's not politically correct or because it's not what their particular stakeholder wants to hear. Um, We're much more like the the metaphor I often use when we're we're having like a first meeting with clients is consider percha your own sort of private, precise surgical instrument. We're not going to give you a lay of the land. We're not going to, we're not going to help you kind of open up new markets and that sort of thing. What we're going to do is you point us in a direction and we're going to give you a lot of power and a lot of insight into whatever you point us at. And we're ultimately accountable to you. Our success is your success and your success is our success. And you know, because we don't have any kind of political background or, or state connection or any of that stuff that, that we are, our only interest is in um, solving the the solution that comes to us. So I, I think that's that might have been a little bit long-winded, but that's how I conceptualize the role of Perch and how we sit between all these different facets of society.
1: Yeah, it must be nice instead of talking or trying to talk truth to power that you get to talk truth to someone who actually wants nothing but the truth. There is one example, though that has been talked about widely in national security circles where private industry works hand in glove with government, and that is in the realm of communications. There's one symbiotic relationship in particular where a tech company and an authoritarian government is challenging the interests of the US and numerous other countries. You've written on your website about a concept that is being pursued in the US called open RAN. Now, I've I've got to admit until I read the analysis on your website, I'd never even heard of it. Could you start by explaining what open RAN actually is?
0: Yeah, so so let's unpack that. Let's start at just the highest level and one of the reasons a lot of the clients that I'm helping these days are tech companies is because um, the relationship between technology and politics is really inextricable, and folks that are in the technology space don't like that. They actually think in terms of technology's use rather than the things that it is used for. Um, you know, technology connects people. It's supposed to be apolitical in some sense, but it's being used by different governments for different means. And obviously, the authoritarian government you were referring to there was China. Um, but so, just to say, um, you know, technology is political and politics is embedded within it. The best example of this is the is the atomic bomb, right? Atomic science developed because folks were trying to find an inexhaustible energy source that would end conflict and war and resource scarcity and ended up creating a weapon that ended World War II and has basically defined you know, military relations since 1945. The intention of technology isn't always what it's ultimately used for in the end. So w- with that sort of intro to thinking about cutting-edge technology... If we're going to talk about OpenRAN, we need to zoom out a bit because OpenRAN is basically a different idea about how cell phones should work. So the basic way your cell phone works right now is that radio waves are getting beamed from the device in your pocket or wherever it is to an antenna on a weird-looking cell tower somewhere. Um, and I don't know about you, when I started focusing on this stuff in the last year, I didn't really realize sort of how prevalent cell towers are, they're literally everywhere. And once you start looking for them, it, it'll actually feel kind of creepy, because it'll feel like they're stalking you everywhere. Anyway, each one of those cell towers has those antennae, and it has a base station that's sort of connected to it that interprets the data that's being gathered by the antenna and works out what gets transmitted and what gets received. And then there's some kind of backhaul. It's usually fiber, a fiber network that gets fed into a network, and that gets it where it needs to go. So the RAN um, is that refers to the radio access network. And that's the bit with the antenna and the base station. So the, the bit that communicates with your cell phone and then figures out what needs to get transmitted or received in order for your text message or your stupid tweet or your funny meme to get where it needs to go. And the kicker is that when a telecom operator chooses the company that it wants for the equipment that makes up that radio access network. So the antenna, the base station, it also has to go with that vendor for all the other parts of the system. The the equipment, the software, it's not interoperable. So if you're going to pick Huawei to build out your 5G network, for instance, you're stuck with Huawei basically throughout the entire RAN and throughout the entire ecosystem. Ditto that with Nokia, ditto that with Ericsson. Now there's a move towards and this is going to, you know, buckle your seatbelts here. I'll try to make this as simple as possible. There's a move towards virtualizing the radio access network. That sounds scary. Think of it simply, and this is a crude metaphor, but it's basically just think in terms of virtualizing that radio access network. Um, That basically means like you're going from a hard drive to a cloud memory on your computer. Same kind of basic principle. So instead of the hardware doing a lot of the work stuff is going to be out there in the software and it's going to get virtualized open ran once you virtualize the radio access network is this idea and this process by which all the different parts of the system so the hardware components and the software components don't have to be vendor specific so you can grab uh, an antenna from this company and a software from this company and a base station from this company and you can make them all work together rather than having to get everything from a Nokia or an Ericsson or a Huawei. So that's the the idea of Open RAN is basically to say you're not going to be wedded to any one company. You're allowed to pick and choose and you open up competition for different components and allow the competition to bring the the high capital costs that come with rolling out a telecom's infrastructure out.
1: Is Open RAN a bit of a dream or an ambition or is it actually going to be a reality?
0: Well, it's, so OpenRAN is just sort of a subset of 5G. Um, and like with previous generations of cellular networks, there's a lot of competing models. Um, when, when I um, I often sort of send clients who are interested in this stuff, if you go back and sort of read uh, major newspapers around 2006, 2007, it's not like 3G and 4G were for sure going to be the way that our cell phones worked. There were a lot of other different architectures and systems that were vying supremacy and it just so happened that 3g and then 4g and lte and all the stuff that we know now was the stuff that won out so open ran is sort of one of these potential options it's the furthest behind um it's 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 there in principle i believe so rakuten in japan has rolled out some open ran system i think those are 4g and i'm pretty sure they're they're rolling out standalone 5g open ran networks in japan in october and it'll be really interesting to see how well it works and how well they do, just how low they're able to drive the costs and whether they're able to be profitable. Um, but yeah, it, it's not a dream. Um, there is definitely there is definitely momentum for open ran hardware, and there's definitely a move towards wanting to encourage it. But it's still it's still well behind sort of the typical vendors, which is why um, you know it's difficult. You know, if the United States wants to prop up open ran as a solution, it's very difficult to say to a country in say Sub Saharan Africa which has developed. You know, models of economic growth based on rolling out 5G networks, it's very hard to tell that country, let's say like a South Africa, for example, hey, don't engage with Huawei, we don't want you, we don't like Huawei, China's really bad, just hold on for about four years. And in about four years, we'll be able to give you an option where you're not dependent on China, you're dependent on us, and everything's going to be great. Like a lot of countries are going to be like, please, like that doesn't make any sense. Even a country like the United Kingdom, I mean, it took the United States really coming down hard with regulations on Huawei and making it so difficult for the UK to even um, start assessing Huawei's security and technology for the UK to come around. So that's one of the reasons that Open RAN, I think, is well behind. Um, it's there and, and there are possibilities for it. And the reason that it's probably most attractive actually has nothing to do with China. Um, the United States, understandably, thinks that it can it can hurt Huawei's position. But what Open RAN really challenges is the fact that there are just three telecoms equipment manufacturers that basically dominate the global markets: Nokia, Ericsson, Huawei. The reason people fear Huawei is because nobody's worried about the Swedes or the Finns going and invading other countries or conquering you know islands in the Baltic Sea. People are worried about China doing that. But it's that over dependence on just three manufacturers that Open RAN is really taking a target to. And I think that's if if that's the reason that it moves forward, I think that'll be why it takes hold, not because it's necessarily specifically anti-China.
1: So given the work that you've done recently on 5G and global competition, what do you believe is driving the desire in the US to strangle Huawei and their efforts to become a global leader in providing 5G networks around the world?
0: Yeah, I, I can answer that in one word. It's fear. Um, And it's why I'm pretty critical and concerned about how the U.S. is going forward. Um, And I understand why the United States is so obsessed with 5G. It's not that 5G is revolutionary or new in any fundamental way. It's really just an improvement on previous things. What 5G does is that because it gives you faster speeds, because it gives you lower latency, and because most importantly, it gives you the ability to transmit lots more data than you could before... It allows for new uses that people haven't even dreamed up yet. I mean, people are thinking about self-driving cars and the Internet of Things, but anybody that tells you that we have figured out what uses people are going to use 5G networks for is just lying to you. The interesting thing is all the possibilities that you can do on a 5G network because of the speed. Um, the reason that the United States um, has sort of identified Huawei in this 5G factor is because all of those sort of things that are going to create the next industrial revolution or that are going to power or what folks think are going to power um, economic growth here in the decade ahead depend on the rollout of these 5G networks. And China just happens to be ahead on a lot of those things. But but what's, what's motivating the United States here fundamentally is fear of China. Um, the United States is worried that China is a real potential challenger to its geopolitical position, that if China was able to you know, go through with some of its desires that it could be a Eurasian hegemon, that's sort of the, the thing that US grand strategy has always been trying to avoid and has been trying to thwart. And so the United States is taking this very narrow thing, where it sees China is a little bit ahead of it, and it's putting all of its pressure on that particular thing. Um, I think the danger there is the United States is not thinking holistically. Just because you're able to slow China down on 5G rollout, for example, doesn't mean you're going to fix all the other ways that China is a challenge. But I do think there's this sense in the United States that if you can stop them from rolling out 5G first and controlling a lot of these networks, you're going to be able to mitigate a lot
1: of the risks. Is is this geoeconomics or national security? And by that, what I mean is, is the US trying to keep a Chinese company from reaping the benefits of being a leader in the new and highly lucrative area, or is it about not allowing China to control the national communication networks of foreign countries where it can conduct espionage or even sabotage, where China might even have the ability to switch off the national communications infrastructure of whole nations in times of crisis?
0: yeah that's a great question. and we'd have to sort of we'd have to have direct conversations with the folks who are authoring the policies. I would guess that there are folks in the in the current administration who are concerned with the geoeconomic part, and I'm sure there are others who are concerned about the security part. when it comes to to networks like this, I mean security is always going to be a fundamental problem. um so you're, you're always going to have difficulty there, and it's it, I'm less worried about China being able to control the information on a network. It goes back to that point about, um, this being the sort of infrastructure of the next cycle of economic growth in the digital age. If you control the, the network itself, if you've laid the fiber, if your technology is the one that is creating the network, you can be something of a gatekeeper. You're allowed to define who gets to be on the network, who doesn't get to be on the network, what people get to consume on the network itself. And I think in that sense, the United States is a little bit uh, wary of what China is doing. But I, I think the geo-economic Issue is the one that's more important to me in the long term. Like I said, um, China is a threat in a lot of different ways when it comes to these networks. But the arguably the bigger threat is the fact that there's just three companies that do this stuff, and that the supply chains that create a lot of the infrastructure that goes into rolling out these networks um, is really brittle and is focused on just a couple countries like South Korea, Taiwan, Japan that are also in kind of an unstable geopolitical environment. Um, it's that over-dependence on just a few suppliers um, that I think spans both of the issues that you're talking about. You're worried about the security of the network and you're worried about the economic viability of that network and your ability to capitalize on it going forward.
1: So the piece on your website, which I, I genuinely encourage people to read, says that the concept is fundamentally flawed because the playing field that US and China competes on is not even to start with china has for a long time encouraged dual use technologies which is products of both commercial viability and military application and they've fostered close relations between elements of its national security community and key industry sectors they've given preferential access to capital for companies it wants to develop as national champions as well as protected industries from international competition these and other methods of supporting Chinese companies put them all at a bit of an advantage compared to private industry and most liberal democracies, where they've got to compete for capital, they've got to compete for market share, and but they don't benefit from state-run or at least state-supported industrial espionage campaigns. Open RAN is just one example of this uneven competition that advantages China, and it's emblematic of the wider challenge of competing with China. This model of governance, especially when paired with such a massive consumer base, really seems perfectly adapted for international competition. How does the US and the rest of the world, or most of the modern democratic world, compete with such a setup?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a really important question. And I, I guess I would start off by with a, with a metaphor that maybe doesn't apply that well in Australia, but I, I often think about it in terms of, um, because what you're really talking about there is shouldn't there just be a free market, and shouldn't things just be openly competitive? And the fact that Huawei and China have been able to get ahead on 5G as a result of that Chinese state support, um, in, in theory, free markets are great, but in practice, I've never actually seen a truly free market. Um, I think of it in terms of the death penalty in the United States. Theoretically, I would say that I'm for the death penalty. I can imagine crimes that someone could could commit that one could conceivably argue should be worthy of the death penalty. The problem is you can't guarantee that the death penalty is going to be applied in any kind of fair and equitable way in practice. So that means I don't support it at all because I don't believe that you can prevent the state from applying it in a way that could be unfair to someone on the basis of race or ethnicity or even on the basis of insufficient evidence, right? I I feel the same way about markets when it comes to these things. And I I think to understand why um, Huawei has become such an important company and why China has gotten ahead on 5G, I would would encourage listeners to check out a book by Susan Crawford. Um, It's called Captive Audience. And she, in that book, she compares um, sort of data and, and these networks, these telecom networks to water and electricity. And she talks about how it's it's one of these industries where monopolies sort of naturally form and consumers and innovators get crushed when a government isn't intervening in order to keep costs fairly low. A, a really, and, and this is one thing I also emphasize to folks, like China does support a lot of its state-owned companies by giving them preferential access to the Chinese domestic market by, you know, making the rules more lopsided so that Chinese companies do better. But if it, it was, if it was just about Chinese state support, Huawei wouldn't be the main actor here. It would be ZTE. China actually threw a lot more money and a lot more state resources at ZTE becoming this company. Huawei emerged because it was able to take the advantages that it got in the Chinese marketplace and then also mimic and evolve like a true global multinational corporation. There are ways in which Huawei is directly tied to the Chinese government and Chinese interests. There are also ways in which Huawei is more like a Microsoft than it is like the Chinese government. It has really, really different interests. But to get back to your question, I I think that if you're going to deal with China in this particular space, the exact wrong thing to do is to operate from a place of fear or to think that you can keep China down and conserve your place in the market right now. What you have to do is push forward. You have to double down on the aspects of liberal democracies that are supposed to make them the best system in the world. And that's, you know, creativity, that's creating the the, the tech ecosystems and the entrepreneurial culture where people want to work there. It's about making sure that the best and the brightest want to come to these liberal democracies and bring their skills and their talents to improve the tech ecosystem. And the other part of that is also creating a system and a framework of rules where different countries are all playing by the same rules, and you're able to stop other countries that are trying to break those rules. And unfortunately, instead of doubling down on those liberal democratic principles, and I understand why the United States and others have done this, um, because 5G and telecoms networks are the exact sort of thing that China's good at. It's the exact sort of thing that requires high capital costs up front that involve really low margins in terms of profits, which companies are going to shy away from. Um, It's the exact sort of thing that when you have massive state government support at the beginning, it's actually a big help. But instead of doubling down on creativity and technological advantage and rules, um, the United States and some of its allies are trying to turn this all on China and basically treating China the same way that we accuse China of treating us, right? So I I think the way to deal with China here is to accept that it makes perfect sense for China to be ahead in this infrastructure rollout stage. But as long as you keep up the rules-based order, as long as you keep promoting um, a general culture of openness and the rule of law and creativity and making it attractive for the best and the brightest to come to your countries, um, China's not going to win out, even if they're ahead in this particular point in time, if we stop the tape today. Um, and, and one of the things I worry about um, is we're not doing that. We're, we're reacting out of that place of fear. And we're saying, oh, no, like China's scary. And now we're going to sanction Huawei. And we're going to use all the rules that we have spent all this time developing against it. Um, that I think is a mistake. And that actually It doesn't actually put China ahead globally. It leads to this fracturing of the world into different hived off markets where instead of globalization, you're getting these zones of geopolitical and technological competition.
1: So 5G is one of the issues that has actually received a significant amount of attention in the news media recently, uh, but that's largely because it's part of the competition between US and China. There's uh, two other issues that we're hearing a lot about almost ad nauseum, which is obviously the COVID-19 pandemic, which is a big issue, but also this never-ending cyclone of drama and scandal that is the Trump presidency, and it's drowning out much else in the news cycle. At a time when there are actually many highly significant issues and trends that would otherwise be receiving a lot of attention. In your perspective, what are some of those issues that you feel deserve more attention than they're receiving right now?
0: Yes. Yeah, so, so there are two of them, Chris, and I, I, I imagine we'll we'll stay on the second one. The first is just, and we can go into this more if you want to, the first is just to remember that the world is becoming more multipolar, not bipolar. We're not going to a sort of a US-China Cold War. Not everything is about the US and China. Uh, We're living through an era of rising and falling great powers, and there are things happening in the European Union, in India, Turkey, Russia, Brazil, Indonesia, all these these rising and falling powers that are hugely important. And those developments are also affecting those in-between regions, the pivotal regions of the world that connect the world together, so places like Central Asia, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, There's renewed competition in these regions that we haven't seen for decades. And a lot of old geopolitical frameworks that seem to get obsolete with globalization are suddenly relevant again. So that's a really big bucket, but that's sort of happening at the global level. And you can get lost if you just focus on the US and China in this, there's a lot of other stuff going on.
1: So w- we might just stick on that issue for a moment. If you could identify two or three of the most pivotal issues that you're seeing, which are the ones that stand out for you and and, and how are they impacting the current world order?
0: Yeah, so I'll, I'll just sort of give you the, a, a short summary of what I think are the top four and we can hack into some of them if you want. Uh, the first and most important is what the future of the European Union is going to be. Um, because it, it seems like Germany and France finally are aligned on an economic basis, on a political basis about what the future of Europe's going to be. And if they can push forward some of those reforms to the EU, the EU suddenly, suddenly becomes a much more active pole of power in the world. And if they can't, the EU probably fragments by the end of the decade. So watching what's happening in the EU right now and how the EU deals with the corona recovery and how it deals with Brexit, that's going to be huge for what happens in the world going forward. Um, Another one of the big players to watch out for is just what's happening in India. And I mean, the stats for COVID-19 are looking particularly bad in India, but the things that I'm interested in in India are more about what is the future of Hindu nationalism? Is Modi just a flash in the pan? Or are we looking at a rising Indian power that has a a more coherent sense of its national identity than we've really ever seen independent India ever have? Like, are we going to be talking about India in 30 years the way that we're talking about China today? Or is India going to revert back to its normal sort of state of you know folks take advantage of it, or it's an economic powerhouse, but it doesn't e- express itself actively on the global stage? And then in those in between regions, uh, the the two two that are at the top of my mind, number one is what's happening in South America, and in South America, you've basically had a geopolitical dynamic since roughly 1990 that's been driven by Brazil and Argentina, who were rivals in the past, agreeing to integrate their economies and agreeing to cooperate. And two huge things have happened. The first is that China has basically supplanted, um, well, what's the right way to say this? So the reason that integration worked was because Brazil was Argentina's most important economic relationship and vice versa now China is both of their most important economic relationship. So that integration is coming apart because of the extent to which Chinese economic influence is being felt in Latin America, and that's changing things. And then on top of that, you've got two ideologically opposed governments with the Bolsonaro government in Brazil, and the Fernandez government in Argentina, one right populist, one left populist, they just don't like each other and just don't think about the world in the same way. So you've got these geoeconomic shifts with China involved under the surface, and then you've got ideological shifts on top of that. And that just changes the whole dynamic of Latin America. And then the second one that I watch for a lot is what's happening in Central Asia, because Um, Central Asia is that pivot region once again, because none of China's belt and road ambitions work if it can't get influence in Central Asia. Russia desperately wants to keep its position in Central Asia. If you look at who's running around in Central Asia and trying to uh, have investment and create economic and political ties, the EU is there, Britain is there, India is there, South Korea is there, Japan is there. It's It's sort of like the bar in Star Wars. Everybody's hanging out there trying to figure out what's going on. And then in the midst of it, the most important country in the region, the most populous one, and the, the only one that borders all the others, the one that makes it an actual region, Uzbekistan, is going through a huge political change, um, is going away from a previously pretty authoritarian black box government and is toying around with economic liberalization and trying to to be more cooperative with its neighbors. And that's literally changing the way that geopolitics works in Central Asia as well. So th- those are the top four on my mind, but I could go on. There's so much change happening globally that when we get too focused on whatever stupid thing Trump said today, or, or when we even get too focused on this very specific localized trade war between the United States and China, we risk um, losing sight of the tremendous global transformation that's happening all around us.
1: Yeah, we, we could dive into any of those issues as a whole podcast on their own, but I'm conscious of the time that we have here. So I'm going to have to settle on your thoughts um, for one of them. And in my opinion, one of the biggest ones there is is Latin America. What does Latin America, having a less integrated approach and in being pulled further into China's orbit, mean for the United States and how it prefers to see the Western Hemisphere?
0: Well, one would think that it would make the United States prioritize its relationship with Latin America a little bit more. And you've seen signs that the United States is thinking about that a little bit, but it it really hasn't gone far enough. And the United States really hasn't come to terms uh, with its own history in the region and what it did during the Cold War in order to keep the region outside of the influence of the Soviet Union. Uh, In some ways, it's the inverse of Southeast Asia. A lot of Southeast Asia um, is dependent on China economically, but is super suspicious of China politically, is worried about what Chinese ambition or aggression looks like in the region, and therefore is more interested in partnering with the United States because the United States is far away, because it doesn't have any tor- territorial claims with them. It sort of thinks of it as a giant that it can deal with rather than this giant that's closer by and has interest in it. Ironically, you know the, that, that describes, I think, the thinking in Vietnam even though Vietnam has its own history of American intervention, but sort of in the geopolitical world today, you couldn't imagine the Vietnam War happening again. You could imagine China trying to take territory from Vietnam that China believes is its own. Um, the inverse is true with Latin America. Uh, what How the United States has dealt with Latin America over the past century has been pretty heavy-handed, has been pretty imperialistic. You've seen the United States intervene in a lot of these countries and install uh, leaders who were friendly to U.S., priorities or to us ideologies rather than necessarily the ones that were elected democratically and that's why i think you've got latin american countries they are attracted by china because for them china's money comes with less strings attached than the american problems and china's really really far away china's not trying to take over the falklands right china's concerned with taiwan and the and the the nine dash line in the south china sea whereas it's actually american allies that you're going to run afoul with with territorial claims in latin america um so I think that's what's going on there and I think the worse that the US China confrontation gets, the more that the United States and Australia and India, Japan are going to be trying to build up an alliance framework in Southeast Asia and they'll probably be successful doing it, but that'll also the, the weak point in that for the United States is Latin America because China has a level of economic influence and is becoming such a powerfully consumer driven economy that it's a more attractive economic partner and political partner in some ways. Uh, than the United States is for a lot of these countries. That's why Argentina is welcoming Huawei with open arms. It's why Bolsonaro, who got elected on on uh, on a little bit of an anti-China platform, in practice hasn't done much to piss off China because he knows that that's where his bread gets buttered. So I think that's what's going on there, and you'll you'll see different countries in the region trying to navigate that great power struggle while also dealing with a framework where the region itself is no longer integrating at the same pace that it was before because of China's participation in the global economy.
1: And will increased economic ties with China equate to greater political leverage in South America? I mean, if we think back to the Cold War and the relations that some Latin American countries had with the Soviet Union, are we likely to see an updated version of that dynamic evolve over time?
0: Well, the the difficult part to this, and there's argument about this, and I'd be curious what you think about this, Chris, is that one of the main differences between the Cold War and between whatever's happening right now between the US and China, I don't think we have the right word for it yet, is that the Cold War was explicitly ideological. There was the communist camp and there was the capitalist camp. And the communists, you know, the Soviet Union believed it was at the vanguard of a global revolution of the proletariat. Um, you know, A lot of that was lip service, but a lot of that was really real. There was an ideological divide there, and the United States felt that it was the leader of liberal democracy, of freedom, of capitalism, and it was willing to, I guess, shortchange some of those ideals because it was for the greater good and it was for the long-term time horizon because opposing um, communist ideology was more important than anything else, um, and you had to prevent the Soviet Union from prevailing before you could have the kind of um, world that the United States dreamed of. I don't see that ideological divide between the United States and China. I mean, the China, China still, I guess you could say structurally, it sort of has a Marxist feel to it. And a lot of the bureaucracy is still organized that way. But in terms of what China does economically, I mean, it's state-run capitalism. It's not communism by any means. Um, and it seems to me that the only real ideology coming out of Beijing right now is Chinese nationalism. Now, if I'm taiwanese or if i'm in singapore or if i'm in anywhere that has even a minority chinese population that would make me really nervous but i don't see that china has any desire to recreate its system of government around the world what it wants to do is become a global uh, center of gravity for the economy it wants to sort of reintegrate um, the world into that system where all roads lead to beijing and you have to bring tribute to beijing and then beijing smiles upon the barbarians accordingly and everything's fine i think that's where china's at and the united states honestly i don't think the united states knows what it wants um, under trump it's it's been very very narrowly defined as make america great again put america first in everything kind of ignoring the fact that america got in this position because it put others first and was able to capitalize on putting others first in those relationships and 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 develop an alliance network that china can't even hope to 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 match right now even with its even with its growth and even with its technological progress so that's a long-winded answer to say, I don't see what political benefits either side is going to get out of this. And I don't think that China necessarily wants the political benefits. I think what it wants is those economic relationships. And because of the way the United States thinks about China and thinks about um, geopolitical conflict in general, it reads a political threat into that and is probably going to react the same way it did to the Soviet Union. But that's that's another case of two sides not understanding, I think, the intents and ambitions of the of the other. So, I don't think that'll play out quite like the Cold War did because those camps aren't as rigidly defined.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- there's a lot of sense in that. I'm one of the annoying fence sitters when it comes to Cold War 2.0. I think the Cold War itself was a lot more nuanced than many argue with hindsight. I see actors on both sides that were driven by ideology whilst others were driven by economics and some that were more concerned with geopolitics and uh, geopolitics and national security. But I also see many actors on either side that used all of these concepts as ways to compete rather than as something to compete over. And in that respect, I don't see the dynamic that's evolving today as being too different. We still see both sides espousing particular ideologies such as, you know, which political system is most effective. And that's something that we've really seen rise to the surface during the pandemic. We still see economic competition for access to materials and markets, as well as good old Geopolitics uh, with competition over contested territory and the development of blue water navies and everything that goes along with that. So, I don't expect history to repeat. Anything that comes in the future won't be a precise fit for what happened in the second half of the 20th century, but I do see a lot of rhyming. But, historical analogies aside, I think it's time we took a quick break. We will be back soon with more on geopolitical disruption from Jacob Shapiro on the National Security podcast
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good
1: we eat or how hard we work out My solution is PlushCare PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi
0: and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hotplate every Monday and Thursday.
1: So Jacob, you said that there was a second issue of significance that's flying below the radar whilst the world hyperventilates over the Trump presidency, coronavirus and the rise of China.
0: Yeah, so so for me, it, it's it's about food supply chains, and I think food supply chains are just fundamentally broken. Um, a lot of my focus lately has been on U.S. food supply chains, so a lot of the st- the statistics that I'll use will will inevitably be U.S. focused. Um, but I, I just feel like food supply chains are breaking down. And it's it's sort of it's similar to when we were talking about data and telecoms networks. It's, it's the same sort of thing. Food is something that everybody needs. You're going to pay for food no matter how much it costs because you need it to survive. And unfortunately, the way the global economy is set up right now, we don't we're not making food the best way possible. We're making it the cheapest way possible. And we're we're in an environment where globalization is increasingly under fire. But food supply chains are based on the idea that everything has to be. Uh, just in time um, you know they're there's they're, they're, they're j- just in the same way that there are supply chain kinks for tech supply chains there are countries that specialize just in a couple cash crops and then have to import food because they spend all of their their agriculture just growing coffee or something like that um, but when you start and when you start peeling back the onion and you start looking at things like you know 30 to 40 percent of the food that we harvest is wasted the fact that you know, we, ha- we produce enough food globally for every person in the world to eat almost 3,000 calories a day, and yet hundreds of millions of people are still suffering from um, undernourishment or even starvation, that sort of thing. Um, when you lace into that, what's happening with climate change, what's happening with demographic trends, um, you know, the global population is going to increase by a couple billion by 2050, and that means um, you know, farmers are going to have to grow 70% more food than they currently do right now um all those things conspire together to make me really nervous about where we're going going forward because i don't think some of the stresses that we've seen in the system due to covid-19 i don't think those are covid-19 stresses i think those are those are signs that the the food supply chain is fundamentally brittle and as we get more you know conflicts or pandemics or climate change events um i, I really worry about how food systems are going to work going forward and then on top of that, what that's going to mean geopolitically. I mean, the best example of this is that the rise of, you can tie the rise of ISIS, for example, to a drought in Syria in 2008. That's why you know, young Sunni men went from Syrian farms into the cities and got really disillusioned and radicalized. And when you had the Arab Spring strike off, there was this body of folks who were willing to revolt and were willing to embrace ideology to find some sense of meeting, and boom, you're off to the ISIS races. Um, so it, it can be abstract, but those food pressures, they build up over time. You can't see their direct imp- impacts right away, but then as it builds up over years, it begins to manifest in ways that are really destructive and volatile.
1: Yeah, this this reminds me of something one of our former colleagues once told us, uh, and that's that nothing will make a person walk into machine gun fire faster than starvation.
0: Well, and, and I mean, the other crazy part of it too is that like so many people are dependent on other countries for their food. Like we're in a world where there's going to be more geopolitical competition. And I mean, the UN is projecting that within a couple decades, 50% of the food that people get is going to be supplied by other countries. Um, and there are only a couple countries in the world that actually have the capability of being food self-sufficient. Australia is one of them. The U S is one of them. It's you know, France, Canada, a couple others, but most countries in the world, can't grow enough food to feed their own populations. They're dependent on global trade functioning the way that it is right now. And I, A, don't think that that's going to continue and B, worry about what food refugees and climate chain refugees and conflict over agricultural land and resources is going to look like in that sort of world going forward.
1: Will wars be fought over access to food like we've seen wars fought over oil and energy?
0: I think, yes, I think so. I mean, I think it's been fought over before and it's been used politically before. It's just that, you know, you can survive. Well, I don't know. Can you survive without a barrel of oil? I mean, food is, is more deeply personal away. But when you look at the US-China trade war right now, for instance, a, a lot of that's about food, right?
1: Yeah, sure. But how much in this instance is food just the convenient issue that Donald Trump's using so he can pick a fight with China? I mean, I can't see food becoming an issue which will force Americans to occupy their town squares and demand the overthrow of government in the face of riot troops. But on the other hand, uh, you do see people staring soldiers down in the street in countries like Egypt or Sudan when grain prices rise and families can't access their staple of flat loaf bread.
0: Well, those are two great examples, and I would sort of add a little more to both of them. Um, before we had COVID-19, there was an African swine fever epidemic in China, which wiped out something like half the pork herd in China and put a tremendous amount of food stress on China itself. And one of the things the Trump administration did, because it was in those negotiations with China on the trade war, was it used that position to try and get China to buy more US agricultural goods. It used that as a point of leverage. Now, I don't know this for sure. It's a hypothetical. And China might have Um, Not been that forthright with the world about COVID-19, even if the United States hadn't put pressure on on China in that specific way. But I think it's fair to say that one of the reasons that China was so afraid of letting folks know what was going on with COVID-19 was because the United States had just used... (laughs) Um, its leverage in in those food negotiations and specifically on pork with China in a way that China really had no response to. It basically had to do whatever the United States asked. And I think that was part of building suspicion there. And if China had been more forthright at the beginning, maybe this is just an epidemic in Wuhan and not a global pandemic. But also to your point about Egypt, um, you know, there's a simmering conflict right now between Egypt and Ethiopia, another thing that nobody is talking about, because Ethiopia, has gone ahead and built a dam on the Nile River and started filling it without any kind of agreement in place with Sudan and with Egypt. Um, The United States has even gotten involved and is angry at Ethiopia for doing this. Um, And it's a huge deal for both countries. I mean, Egypt literally can't survive without the water from the Nile River, and Ethiopia is going ahead damming it. So you're definitely going to see geopolitical conflict there. And like you said, when, when you look at some of the political rhetoric and some of the changes that are happening, that all goes down to how egypt's going to feed itself and that and that that's going to affect all of east africa that's also going to affect the indo-pacific because that's right on some of those important trading routes um you know, food is is not necessarily it's not ne- it's never going to be probably the thing that sparks the conflict but i think that food stress and the competition over agricultural land and agricultural resources is it's going to be there in the background. And one of the things that brings folks to having those sort of conflicts is if they see a situation in which they might be deprived of food or deprived of the resources that they need, then they start building those strategic plans to react. And then you get the kind of conflict that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Governments can spin themselves out of many a crisis, but try telling your population that they're not hungry and that their children aren't suffering from malnutrition. So sticking in the Middle East for a minute, we have seen the shocking example of peace breaking out. Israel and some Arab states seem to have gone off the 2020 disaster script and created peace treaties. Is this a positive outcome for the region? Are we seeing a shift towards stability here?
0: Yeah, so the the funny thing there is that it's, yes, so some of these Arab states are recognizing Israel for the first time, but they're doing it out of, out of fear and out of competition probably with Turkey or with Iran, depending on which country they are. Um, so the two countries you're referring to, the UAE has come out and said it's going to normalize relations with Israel, and Bahrain, I believe, yesterday or the day before announced its intention to... Um, I don't think we've seen Saudi, I don't, Saudi Arabia hasn't come out and said yet that it's going to, but a lot of folks see that Bahrain thing as a, as a trial balloon of them sort of trying it on. I also saw that, I mean, Morocco has said it's not going to normalize relations, but it started direct flights with Israel. Either way, it's a huge deal, um, especially for Israel, because the entire goal of, of Israeli grand strategy going back to even before the founding of the state of Israel was to get relationships with the Arab states. Um, Israel felt like if it, if it could get the Arab states to recognize its independence, um, Israel might be able to really think about surviving and being more strategic in a long-term way. Um, but I, I and I think what's really driving things here is that the Arabs and the Israelis feel like they have some common enemies. And those common enemies are Iran and Turkey. Um, I'd also just kind of throw in, it's it's hard not to feel bad for the Palestinians who have gotten sort of the, the short end of the stick, every way you can look at it. Um, you know, they don't get their own state. They've been betrayed by their own leaders, by different Arab states. They've had to deal with um, what Israel has been doing in terms of occupation. And, and you know, we, can, we don't have to go into the politics of that, but its relationship with the, the Palestinians, relationship with Israel has been tough over a long period of time. It's, it's sort of hard not to feel for them in that sense. But as you sort of alluded to earlier, um, the geopolitical realities mean the Israelis and Arabs need to be on the same side. And Iran has been significantly weakened by U.S. pressure on Iran, but that's a constant worry for the Arab states, especially the ones in the Gulf. I think that's the one that they're worried about in the short term because it looked for a second there like Iran was really going to be able to project influence in Iraq and maybe further, that, that so-called Shiite crescent all the way out to the Mediterranean. But um, the, the long-term issue here is Turkey because Turkey is it, Turkey's not ready to be sort of a Middle Eastern regional power quite yet. But it definitely wants to be, and it's definitely building towards that. When you look at the relationships that Turkey's trying to have in the region, it's building military places, uh, military bases in places like Qatar and places like Somalia. Um, it's it's deeply involved in Libya. You can you can it, it, Turkey's almost too transparent about its kind of long term views, and both the Sunni Arab states and Israel have deep suspicions about what Turkey's going to be doing going forward. So I think it's one of those situations where. Um, I, I don't think relations between, you know the Israelis and the Arabs are ever going to be friendly, but they sort of realize <laughs> like we're sort of stuck between these bigger powers and unless we find a way to work with each other and deal with each other on a more pragmatic basis, um, we could really be, in trouble. So ironic, it's sort of that enemy of my enemy is my friend thing.
1: Turkey and Israel have previously found a way to get along, though, not necessarily to be friends, but to deal with their differences diplomatically and peacefully and refrain from hostilities in in a pretty tough region. This seems to have shifted over the last decade or so. What has brought that change about?
0: Well, Israel and Turkey were both part of the US Cold War framework against the Soviet Union in the region. And that, I think, brought them together. I should also say, though, that, I mean, Turkey was one of the first Muslim countries to recognize the state of Israel when it declared independence in 1948, which is why it's um, ironic and a little disingenuous of um, Turkey's uh, president, Erdogan, uh, for, for really criticizing some of these Arab states for doing the thing that Turkey did in 48 or 49. I forget the exact year. Um, But yeah, I think that once you took the Cold War out of the situation, that that was one of the things that led to a breakdown between Israel and Turkey's interests. And then the second thing is just that Turkey is undergoing a transformation of its own. It's moving away from the secular state that it really has been been since, you know, the 1930s. It was founded on real principles of secularism, and it's dealing with what it means to be an Islamic country and trying to figure out the right relationship between Islam and its political system and right now the guy who is in power Erdogan wants to have wants Islam to have a greater role in that and has used Islam as a way to cement Turkey's ambitions in the region and you know sort of in the same way that the arabs would take advantage of the palestinian position now he's taking advantage of that and he's trying to build this sort of pan sunni network because he knows that if he can make this not about nationalism or not about ethnicity if he can make this about religion then Turkey really can claim to be a regional leader because that was the home of the caliphate. And Turkey thinks that it can project its unique form of political Islam onto the rest of the region. And that's going to work for it. So I think it's a combination of, you know, the general context change, the Cold War is no, no longer dominating Middle East relations. And then also just Turkey has changed and become more powerful. And it's decided to embrace an ideology to cement some of that power and further some of that power that it's very easy for it to pick out Israel. Um, as an enemy, because when when you have that sort of ambition, you always need an enemy to define yourself against.
1: It, it seems to create a rather tense, strange triangle, where you have three countries who treat each other with deep suspicion, but no two countries are finding a way to gang up on their mutual enemy. Israel and Turkey are no longer friends, Iran is Israel's sworn enemy, and Iran and Turkey, who share a border, are in competition as potential regional powers, both having been centres of empires in their history. What is the relationship between Turkey and Iran, like under Erdogan, and how is that likely to evolve, evolve in the near future?
0: Yeah, that's one of the most interesting questions in the Middle East. And I'll, I'll be frank with you. I, I actually, I've, I've always thought that I think of Turkey and Iran as long-term strategic rivals. And I was actually talking with an Iranian analyst friend of mine who used to work in Rouhani's office recently. And he told me I was an idiot for thinking that, and that Iran and Turkey were going to work together just fine, and that you know, they were all Muslim, and that it was really the Arabs that were crazy. Um, so, uh, you know, d- d- having said that, um, I think long-term Look, Turkey and Iran are going to be, I think, well, I, I guess I should qualify that. Um, if Iran is able to come back from US sanctions, if it's able to to stabilize its economy, if the government is able to assert a little bit more control, um, and it's able to project power, then it could be a long-term strategic competitor for Turkey. Um, if it can't, though, maybe Iran is just going to be a little bit more pragmatic. And I mean, we've seen some recent developments of Turkey and Iran working together. Um, it's It's ironic because... In the past, um, Turkey and Iran often used different Kurdish groups against each other. You know, they would foment Kurdish separatism in one country to get at the other country. Um, they announced in a meeting earlier this week that they're both going to go after their Kurds together. <laughs> so you know, some, some weird moment of, of interregional harmony on that score. But for right now, I think think in terms of Turkey and Iran as pragmatic partners. Um, they have more to gain from being, with, being in partnership with each other on a pragmatic level than they do uh, with competing. But if, if both Iran and Turkey were able to achieve some of their imperatives over time, if, um, if the Arabs and the Israelis can't succeed in sort of creating that bulwark between them, then yes, you, you would kind of revert back to the, that old kind of Turkish-Iranian competition. But, but not not for now. For now, I think they're too far away and they're both too concerned with things going on in their near abroad and at home um, to be competing on that foreign policy level.
1: Okay, I'm going to have to start wrapping this up soon as I'm conscious of your time, but I can't leave this conversation without getting your thoughts on the turmoil and friction that is occurring domestically in the United States and what that's likely to mean for America's place in the world.
0: Yeah, it's it's been really disconcerting as an American to to deal with it all. Um I think it's 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 about much more than Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is a symptom of what's going on here, but The United States is really just in the midst of, I don't want to call it an identity crisis, but we're certainly self-absorbed with our own problems. Uh, Wealth inequality in the United States is at the highest in recorded history. It's even higher right now than it was at the height of the Great Depression. Um, We don't have data going all the way back um, in the 19th century, but I would assume it's at similar levels. Um, The way I think about this is I think the United States is going through a period like it went through in the 1890s and in the 1920s, where you had a fundamental reorganization of society. Um, and it was it was really bumpy to get there, but the United States came out the other end a little bit more stable. The difference, of course, is that in both the 1890s and the 1920s, the United States was not the global superpower that it is today. The United States has not gone through one of these internal crises um, when it was an undisputed global superpower really ever, and we don't really have a lot of historical precedent to go on. Um, I'll also say that I I get asked a lot whether I think what's happening in the United States resembles what was happening in the 1960s. Um, And I often caution people from using that particular comparison because in the 1960s, they were a lot further along in those disagreements than we are right now. I mean, the 1960s, the Vietnam War was going on. Um, You had real political disagreement that was being voiced by really radical voices like Malcolm X, like Robert Kennedy, like um, Dr. Martin Luther King. A lot of people got assassinated, lost their lives. All three of those guys were were assassinated because of their views. Um, We're not there yet. There's Donald Trump, who is this weird kind of populist, um, I don't know, creation. And the, the, the liberal opposition is led by Joe Biden, who's a centrist, whose only position, it seems to me, is that he's not Donald Trump. Um, and the Democrats don't seem to have realized that uh, a negative campaign, and I don't mean like a negative anti-Trump campaign, I mean a campaign that is that is all about how Biden isn't something, um, is a difficult one to, to make. It's a difficult case to make to the American people. So I think the United States is at the very early stages of one of these moments of political reorganization. I think it's going to be a very lucky decade, uh, perhaps because I'm an optimist, or perhaps because I can't bring myself to face the alternative. I, I think that we will eventually... Um, stop yelling at each other and have the difficult conversations about how our society um, needs to change and needs to be more fair and more equitable for everyone. But I think we're talking multiple election cycles away. I think for now, expect a more self-absorbed United States that is less concerned um, with building or or maintaining a global rules-based order and is more concerned about you know, what it does for politicians Right now, in the short term, rather than thinking about the, uh, rather than thinking about America's place in the world, that's probably not very comforting for uh, for listeners in uh, in Australia, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, like it, it, it's a constant theme of conversation, both internally and between governments in the region, as to how present in and committed to the region the US will be over coming years, and even if they are willing to remain in the region how possible that will be for Washington if it's distracted by deep political infighting or social instability. Uh, To say that we watch with interest would be somewhat of an understatement. Unfortunately, we're going to have to draw the discussion to a close, which is unfortunate because there's so many issues that we could continue to discuss here. But before we do, I'd like to pose a question to you that we've been putting to most guests here on the NatSecPod this year. What is one of those seminal moments in your life that has shaped your career? Have there been any books that you've read, any famous speeches you've heard, works of art or even the travel experiences that have shaped the way that you understand the world?
0: Yeah, I, I love this question. I've I've got two answers for you, and and the f- and it's not anything that my past because I feel like I, so much of how I think about the world is defined also by what I'm consuming in any particular moment. So I'll just tell you sort of two of the things that I'm consuming right now in my own personal life, which might be, um, affecting the way that I see the world. The first is that I mean, perhaps for obvious reasons, I've just been reading a lot of sci-fi and a lot of dystopian stuff and rereading it. So in the last couple months, I've reread 1984. Um, I, 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 just, I always loved Blade Runner, but I just actually read, do androids dream of electric sheep? That's the Philip Dick novel that Blade Runner is based on. Um, the Dune trailer has me super excited about, um, about Dune in general, but also had me rereading that. Um, and the reason I'm thinking about all those books is that I think they relate to a lot of what we're seeing right now. I mean, we're in a global pandemic. It feels like there's a climate change emergency every other day. Uh, When you look at some of the pictures coming out of, for instance, in the United States, the wildfires that we're having right now in the West Coast, I've got family in California, so that's a little bit personal for me. I know Australia had some wildfire issues. Um, I guess that was what last summer for y'all was when things were getting bad there. Um, But when you look at some of the pictures of San Francisco today right now and the sky is orange, it's hard not to think about um, these, you know, what, what used to be fictionalized stories, which seemed so foreign and seemed impossible to me now seemingly coming true in front of me. And I've been rereading those books just because I think that, um, it's not so much about the the stories themselves as as it's about how people acclimate to these sorts of changes and how, um, sort of slow moving changes over time create political systems that you didn't imagine could be possible. But when you have these crises, um, they create systems that aren't necessarily good. A lot of times they can be bad and people glam onto them because they're worried about survival or they're worried about whatever crisis they're dealing with in the moment. Um, and then the second, the second thing I would just talk about, and this is a, a, a piece of music that I it's basically been stalking me my entire life, but it's, it's Bach's B minor mass. Um, and I'm a, I'm a choral singer. I won't embarrass myself by demonstrating for your listenership at all. Um, But but an old conductor of mine back when I was in a choir at Cornell University used to say that there were two real sort of um, the the two best works of choral music in the Western canon were Bach's B minor Mass uh, and the Brahms Requiem. They're both beautiful, but I, I love Bach's B minor Mass mostly because I love Bach himself. And the reason I love Bach so much is because... Um, he's really the master of dissonance, but not just of dissonance for dissonance's sake, but he makes dissonance resolve and he makes dissonance sound good. Um, and for me, when I'm thinking about politics, that really, it, it matches up with a lot of how I approach political issues. Um, I don't think there are any clear black and white answers to just about any question. I think you really have to lean into dissonance, especially in moments of global uncertainty that we're in right now. And you have to find those points You have to find the the points that are dissonant, the parts that don't make sense with don't make sense with each other. But you also have to figure out how to resolve them. You have to be able to see multiple different points of view at the same time. And no matter how difficult things are, you sort of have to get through the entire piece and then resolve at a place where there is stability and peace. Um, so ironically those are those are two very different things the dystopian novels are pretty pessimistic because they assume that resolution looks like dictatorship or a global war or some other scary thing and you know bach is sort of that that call to dissonance being able to resolve in harmony being able to get to a place where maybe we're not singing the exact same tune but we can both be singing the same tune and it sounds good together and we're actually working together to cope with some of these problems rather than some of the more pronounced geopolitical competition that we're seeing. So, uh, take that with a grain of, or, or take that for what it is. I don't know what your listeners will think about me that I, I recommended dystopian novels and box B minor mass as the answer to this question. But for some reason, those are the things that are on the top of my mind right now and are informing how I, well, I guess, not just informing how I view the world, but they're like the, the therapeutic salves that I'm using to get through this incredibly uncertain time.
1: Well given that I've also reread 1984 recently but I'm still in that dystopian mindset maybe I need a little more bark in my life as well mate Jacob Shapiro thanks very much for talking to us on the National Security podcast thanks Chris And a big thanks to Jacob for joining us here on the National Security podcast If you'd like to join the discussion on what the important geopolitical trends are today, you can do so by getting in touch on Twitter using at Apps Policy Forum. You can speak to me directly using at NETSEC Pod. You can join the Policy Forum Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. Or you can use the personal touch and drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. Don't forget to drop us a rating on whatever platform you pod with and leave some feedback if you have some ideas on what we can discuss on future episodes or even how we might improve the podcast. We will be back soon to continue our discussion on private industry as part of the national security community. And we'll also continue to bring you more installments from our discussion series between Roy Medcalf and leaders of the Australian national security community in celebration of our 10th anniversary here at the ANU National Security College. Until then, take care of yourself, wear a mask if you can, look out for those who could use a little support during difficult times and we will catch you on the next episode of the National Security Podcast.